Well, take your Bibles and join me tonight again in the book of Jonah. We are uh, nearing the end. In fact, uh, a little surprisingly so. I don't get caught off guard often in my sermon series, and I've been having so much fun in the book of Jonah. I was looking ahead and thinking of what's to come next, and I realized, <gasps> July's coming. <laughs> and when July gets here, we're starting a new Sunday evening series. And so I've got a lot of work to do. We're working on that. We already have something going that direction. But we are rapidly moving through the book of Jonah, and we are there again tonight. And so we're in Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Jonah 3, 5, and as tonight we dig into this, there is a great opportunity as we see Nineveh's revival. There's been a lot of discussion lately on revival, especially a month or so ago, a couple months ago, where it would seem as if something was happening on certain college campuses, and there was certainly question marks about those revivals, but there cannot be any question mark about the revival that we see in the book of Jonah. Nineveh's revival. Can you imagine a revival among a people group? So wicked, so perverse in every way, so adverse to the things of the God of Israel, and yet within 40 days, the entire nation, the city of Nineveh and the city-state that it was, is converted. That's revival. That's revival. It's interesting as we think about this, I did a little research, and did you know that Assyrian Christians still exist today? Assyrian Christians who can trace their heritage, or at least they say they can trace their heritage, all the way back to the time of Jonah. Isn't that fascinating? They have beliefs that were more Coptic or a more Eastern Orthodox in some ways, but they trace their lineage all the way back through Christ, but to Jonah and the revival that took place there. This is a people group that in 2015 were overrun by ISIS. ISIS had taken out the Assyrian Christians or tried to take them out. And yet, as ISIS and the concerns of ISIS have abated somewhat in the last couple years, we've seen them resurge. And so there's a group of Assyrian Christians again today, prolific in their number and growing in their number, in northern Iraq, their heritage tracing back to Nineveh. Can you imagine a revival that lasts 3,000 years? That's the revival you and I have the opportunity of studying tonight. It's found in a few short verses. It's certainly not the overall emphasis of the book of Jonah. And as we will see, it is not going to last long for the nation. There is a remnant, a small group that has continued on throughout the centuries, but a hundred years after Jonah is in Nineveh, God is going to destroy the Assyrian armies and the Assyrians themselves because of their rebellion against him. But for this moment, we're going to see a revival that takes place here. And so we begin in verse 5 of chapter 3. And so we're going to dig into this text together after we ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before You, grateful that today, whether the heritage is interrupted or uninterrupted, there is at least a lineage of those who go back to the time of Jonah 
and the unnamed king in Nineveh. Lord, I praise you that those who were there in Nineveh, the some 600,000 souls that were there, would experience a revival that would rival any others throughout history. We praise you and thank you for your grace and mercy demonstrated to them. We have sung of it tonight. And yet, we recognize that the grace and mercy that was demonstrated to us, Christ on the cross, and then to us in this day, was the same grace and mercy demonstrated to the Ninevites 3,000 years ago. So Lord, we are those who stand in awe of you, exalting you and praising you, thankful for the time that we can spend together in your word. And we do ask your blessing upon these next few moments. That as we spend time here, the worries of the world that are around us will drift away. That our hearts would be driven in worship, united together as we rally around your word. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for the time we can spend here tonight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we begin in verse 5, the scripture says this, and I'm going to read, all of the rest of the chapter from verse 5, and we're going to come back and begin to break it apart. Scripture says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of, of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. We begin in verse 5 with the repentance of Nineveh, and we saw the sermon that Jonah preached. The sermon that Jonah preached is found in the last half of verse 4, and, and this is, while, while we were in Alaska, we participated in the worship service there in the church, and the senior pastor was gone on a trip to Cambodia and had taken a number of folks with him, and so we were sitting in the church service, and the service starts, and the music goes through, and it's similar to our style and, and our direction of music, and then the guy who was going to deliver the message stood up, and he had three stories, and he read from Proverbs chapter 31. It was Mother's Day, and so read from verse 10 to verse 31, and, and that was it. Those who were traveling with all looked at me and said, that, and I said, don't even go there. Notice Jonah's message, last half of verse 4. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his sermon. That's his message. He walks into Nineveh, and for 40 days, five weeks, he calls out and says, in 40 days, and probably counting down as he goes, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, we know that Jonah said more than that, but probably not in his proclamation. He probably, as he encountered people along the way who were saying, Jonah, what do you mean? He would probably address them then because 
the people of Nineveh have responded. Notice how they respond, and that's in their repentance in verse 5. They, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, there are some translations out there today that translate God in the Old Testament. Every time that the word Yahweh was used, they would translate it Yahweh in English, so we understand the difference between the names of God in the Old Testament. So there's some modern English translations who are doing that today. This would be one of those places where they would put Yahweh in. And in verse 5, we see this statement, and the people of Nineveh believed the God of Israel, Yahweh. That is a significant statement, because remember last week, who the Babylonians worshipped. They worshipped Dagon, the god of the Mediterranean, a fish god who was over the Mediterranean, and his chief city was Joppa. This is who they worshipped. So when Jonah comes into Nineveh, stinking like the inside of a fish, and bleached from the inside of a fish, and he begins to proclaim, repent, if he said nothing more, then they would look to Dagon. But notice what verse 5 again says. And the people of Nineveh believed God. There was no question about who they believed in. They did not believe in Jonah. They did not see Jonah as the supernatural deity of Dagon or uh, emissary of Dagon. They saw him as the voice of the God of Israel. That is an important distinction for us. And we begin to notice several lessons on revival and several lessons on what happens when someone comes to know Christ as Savior, even though this is Old Testament. And so as we dig in, we need to notice a few things. First, we need to notice their altered priorities. We notice things begin to shift. Jonah's message to the Ninevites was eight words, taking only half of verse 4. In verse 5, we know that Jonah spoke of the God of Israel because they transferred their faith. This is their first altered priority. They transferred their faith from Dagon to Yahweh. They would need to know more than the eight words that Jonah spoke for that transfer to happen. Repent. The message of Jonah was 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So who are they to turn to? Who was it that was going to overthrow them? Jonah had to give all of those details and did so evidently because they believed in God. The word believed means to confirm or to support. The tense of the word that Jonah uses here means that the people heard what Jonah said, considered everything, the alternatives, pros and cons, and confirmed that what Jonah said was true. Isn't that an outstanding statement? They heard what Jonah said. Here is this great city. We've seen, as we studied last week, the indication multiple times in the book of Jonah, the description of the city as the great city. The great city of Nineveh. It was, as I said last week and prior weeks, it was a city built by the military for the military. Had an outside and an inside wall and a further inside wall. It had 15 
hundred turrets on the inside wall, eight miles in from the outside wall. This was an impressive city in every way. And Jonah preaches. His message is, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. From a purely humanistic standpoint, the Assyrians who lived in Nineveh could have looked out past their walls and said, you and whose army? We don't see an army out there. The time of the Ninevites, the way that cities were taken was by siege. And so you can imagine the Ninevites on the outside wall going, there's no siege. We have 40 days worth of provisions inside the walls. Most likely they certainly did. As a military people and as a warring people, they certainly would have prepared for an attack that would eventually come upon them. And they see no army out there and they have the provisions. All they had to do was wall themselves in for 40 days and Jonah's testimony would be proven false. But when they heard it, they believed. They confirmed that what Jonah said was true. That is an important element for us as well. Jonah preached a very simple message. But it led the people to faith. It led the people of Nineveh to faith in God, not in Jonah. When you're sharing the gospel message, let us make sure that the object that you are focusing on is Christ, not you. It's not about you. Many times that stifles our evangelistic efforts because we believe that if we have to share Christ, we have to have some, some great way of sharing Christ, some uh, complex story or uh, some elaborate testimony. Jonah preached eight words, and it was a simple message. In fact, Jonah's not the only one. One of the most effective preachers in the English-speaking world was saved with such a simple message as Jonah preached, a very similar one. He had gone to a primitive Methodist chapel to hear a sermon, but when he got there, he discovered that the pastor wasn't there, similar to a story in Alaska. Actually, no one even knew where the pastor was when he arrived. So after moments of awkward silence, one of the laymen in the church stood up to preach. He preached on one simple text for about 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, the layman had exhausted what he had to say, but he noticed a young Charles Spurgeon sitting in the room. Not recognizing him and noticing his downcast expression, he called out from the front, young man, you look miserable. And you will look miserable and you will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved, young man. Look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. With that, the sermon finished. Yet God's clear invitation, delivered in such a simple manner, penetrated Spurgeon's heart. And at that moment, he looked to Christ alone and was indeed saved. A simple message from an unknown layman, unknown to the annals of history. Jonah invited the people of Nineveh to look to the God of Israel. They did and were saved from God's judgment. 
and we see them shift from Dagon, their worship of Dagon, so we see altered priorities, but notice as the text continues, there's some more priorities that are changed. The people change, and their king changes too. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is an important statement because it's reversed. It's reversed from the way that the nation of Israel thinks. And actually, the way we see God relating to the nation of Israel. If you, and we may soon, one of these days, study through the book of Judges together, and we'll notice that as the leader of Israel goes, so goes Israel. Have you noticed that? In the book of Judges, it's like this. You're on this massive roller coaster ride, up and down, and there's no godly leader, and the people of Israel wander away from the things of the Lord, and then God raises up a judge, and the people return, and they're following after the things of the Lord, and the judge dies, and that generation dies, and the people nosedive back into the next uh, downward cycle, and then they get all the way to the bottom, they cry out to God, and God raises up another leader. And that's the, the course, the roller coaster ride of Israel throughout the book of Judges. But it's interesting that God is dealing with the nation's leaders and the nation as a whole when he deals with Israel. And he's still doing that today. In fact, it is as the leaders of Israel go, so go the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Salvation is individual. And it is interesting and a fascinating note to me that when we come to the study of Nineveh, it is the individual that's, that gets called out first. It's not the king. The individual Ninevite begins to put on sackcloth to sit in ashes. They begin to fast. News hasn't even reached the king's ears yet. The personal priorities of the people change. The personal priorities. They would never have taken sackcloth and ashes and, and, and remorse and humility bowed before the God of Israel. But the personal priorities of the people changed as the people cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is, or was, usually made of goat hair and usually very dark in color. It was coarse. And on occasion it was made of cotton as well, but most likely this was made of goat hair. And it was used for grain sacks and other utilitarian type purposes. So it was relatively cheap to obtain, but it was very lowly. It was looked upon as very lowly to be wearing it, and it was a sign of humiliation and mourning indeed when you did. And when you added ashes to that, it was even more. And so the action of these people in verse 5 is that they sit in mourning and humiliation on their own accord. The people not only clothe themselves, but we recognize after the king gets involved that they're going to cover their animals in verse 8. They're going to call for a fast, and later the king would call for a national fast. So we see all of this taking place. These people were going without food in order to dedicate themselves to praying to God for mercy without the king's command. Later the king is going to command it as well. But it's already happening in the people. By the grace of God, the Ninevites believed the word of God and placed their faith in God. Paul's sermon, as we think about what the message is, there's a trend today, we see it in the church today, where let's not talk about judgment. 
Let's not talk about heaven and hell. Let's not talk about punishment that's to come. And so we, we remove those elements. Maybe we're tempted to remove those elements because they're offensive in the gospel presentation. But Paul didn't do that. Turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And we say, okay, well, Jonah says that destruction is coming in 40 days, but that's Old Testament. And so we don't think of it as being modern for the New Testament in this age. But Acts chapter 17, notice how Paul ends his statement to the people of Athens. To the people of Athens, Paul says in verse 30 and 31, he says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is not a very comfortable ending to the sermon that was preached or the message that was given to those at Athens. Paul has assembled these wise leaders of Athens and he is crying out to them. And this is a a brilliant demonstration of the gospel and one that I encourage you to study in Acts chapter 17 because we are very similar people to the Grecians of Athens. And so Paul's method of sharing the gospel is very similar to the way that we could be sharing the gospel today. Certainly the message is the same, but his approach is very similar. What we find fascinating about that is Paul doesn't say, trust in Jesus as your Savior and that's it. He says, you better repent because judgment is coming. Judgment is going to be here. There's a a responsibility There's a warning of pending judgment. So the people of Nineveh were warned. And like the Athenians, the warning was, God is going to judge. Unlike the Athenians, the Ninevites repented. Much to Jonah's dismay. Can you imagine the heart of the two evangelists that we've just looked at? One a prophet of the Old Testament, one an apostle of the New Can you imagine, Paul, if even a handful of Athenians would have responded at that moment? Paul would have been overjoyed, a church would have been planted, and the gospel would have penetrated Athens deeply, as we've seen it in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and many other places. Paul would have been overjoyed. Can you imagine if 600,000 would have responded? That's what... Jonah sees happen, and Jonah's despondent. I knew God was going to do this. I knew God was going to have mercy on them. Just look at him down there. I bet he's even going to relent from judging them. That's where we find Jonah next week (laughs) as we study chapter 4 together, Lord willing. But for now, we see this revival in a place that was unlike, unlikely to happen. We see not only altered priorities, we also see altered behaviors. Notice in verses 7 and 8, we, well, let's uh, look into verse 6, because I mentioned it, but briefly. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. I want to highlight that just a moment before we move on to behaviors. It happened in the people... And then it happened in the king. 
So the king wasn't excluded, but he wasn't leading it. Which is that unique part. The unique part of this is Israel would have responded to its leaders responding to the things of God. The people of Nineveh heard first, responded first, and then the king responded. That is a, a strange phenomenon in the Old Testament, and it is a wonderful phenomenon, which speaks to the reality of what really took place in Nineveh. However, we also move on, verse 7 and 8, and the scripture says this, and he issued a proclamation, that is the king, issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Not only were their priorities altered, but their behavior was also altered. Can you imagine the difficulty of causing the flocks of 600,000 people to stop eating for the time of sackcloth and ashes? If you've ever taken care of livestock, you know that's a difficult task to do. And then to cover them in sackcloth is also a significant task to do. But that is what the decree was, and they did it from beasts, herds, and flocks. Nobody ate anything, nothing ate anything, and nothing and nobody drank water for this time of humiliation and mourning. The Ninevite king, though, and I, we need to make this distinction because it's easy for us in a, a nation such as ours to get caught up and enamored when a leader begins to turn a little bit towards us. But let us be cautious. The leader of Nineveh was not calling for a national day of prayer. He was calling for national repentance. Sometimes when a crisis happens, national and local leaders will call for seasons of prayer, times of prayer. We would see this a lot in the city of Chicago when somebody would be shot. You would have a prayer vigil. People would meet around the clock and pray in the spot that the person was shot in. And they would do all kinds of religious things there. So when crisis happens, maybe it's a tornado or maybe it's hurricane or an earthquake or some natural disaster or some national crisis takes place, you'll see leaders across the political spectrums call for days of prayer. I don't get very excited about that anymore. Maybe that's because I'm more cynical than I used to be in my younger years. But I remember the call to prayer at 9-11. Those of you who were old enough to remember that, you remember the, the national call to prayer and then how quickly it just dried up. I remember multiple calls to prayer when hurricanes would come across the southern part, portions of our country and a call to prayer. It's not that I'm not saying we should not do that. I'm saying it doesn't excite me like what I see in the king of Nineveh. What I see in the king of Nineveh is that this is not a call for a day of prayer and maybe God would relent. This is a call for confession. This is a different kind. This was far more deep than what we've seen in our nation most recently. 
This was a call for the confession of the people's sin, and it was genuine. Both their public and private lives were radically altered. They were radically altered at this point. So I, I would get very excited if something like this were to happen in our nation. But this is very different than what we've seen happen in our nation in recent years. This is a call that is unlike calls we have seen. And then briefly, it's interesting to me how brief this is, but notice how God responds in mercy. Two verses. That's all that is spent on the mercy of God in the book of Jonah in such a a direct way. Notice verses 9 and 10. It says, who knows, this is the king's statement, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Then the passage that specifically refers to the mercy of God, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God responds in mercy. Jonah doesn't spend much time in the evidence of the mercy of God. But we're going to spend a few moments here tonight for just a a little bit, because we're not going to spend a lot of time either. But first we notice the hearts of the people. That's what we find in verse 9. The open, honest statement of the king of Nineveh speaks to the heart of the people. This is why this isn't like a call for a national day of prayer to advert the tragedy or to comfort those who have been affected or afflicted by the tragedy. There's something different. When he says this, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's fascinating to me that Jonah didn't include that in his message. Remember, Jonah wasn't called to. It wasn't repent and God will turn from his judgment. That's not the call. The message was the city's going to be destroyed in 40 days. You better be right with God. That's the message. There was no, and we know that not only from the king's response, but also Jonah's response, there was nothing in Jonah that said, if you turn, God will relent. The king certainly doesn't believe that. He's casting himself and the people of Nineveh upon the mercy of God that God might show mercy to them. But there was no guarantee. The king falls upon the mercy of God. He's not demanding the mercy of God. He's not claiming that God must respond But he cast himself humbly with humiliation and the people of Nineveh as well onto the mercy of God. And then God's mercy. God responds with mercy in this passage we just read, verse 10. From the human perspective, we might be sitting beside Jonah. So again, I say don't don't judge Jonah too harshly. You and I may have been sitting beside Jonah. And okay, the message has been delivered. Now it's time for the fire. We want to see this. You say, well, I'm not so sure. Remember two of Jesus' disciples? When the Samaritan village wouldn't invite Jesus in to spend the night in the Samaritan village as they were on their way to Jerusalem. And two of the disciples called Jesus to send down hail, fire, and brimstone upon them. Destroy them, Jesus! There's almost a cheering, chanting section of that (laughs) We may be sitting next to Jonah. It would seem from our perspective as if God's mind changed regarding the fate of the wicked Ninevites because God didn't tell 
Jonah that there would be a relenting of judgment if they repented either. Jonah didn't know. Jonah hoped it wouldn't, but Jonah didn't know. And his message was, repent. This city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. But the Lord was patient with the people of Nineveh, even as he is patient with Jonah. And this becomes a major theme to the book. The major theme to the book is the mercy of God. And even though we get one verse of the mercy of God to the Ninevites, we get an entire chapter of God's mercy to Jonah at the end of the book. And we get most of the chapter at the beginning of the book of God's mercy to Jonah. We see the mercy of God demonstrated to Jonah over and over and over. And that's the real focal point of the book. That's why the king of Nineveh is not named. That's why we're not given very many more details of the people of Nineveh. That's not why, or that is why we don't see a tremendous amount of detail on the impact of the revival that happens in Nineveh. This is all that there is. These few verses that we've studied tonight is all that there is of the revival of 600,000 people. But God's mercy is what is in focus. And what God does with Jonah is more in focus than what God does with the Ninevites. God simply responded according to his purposes and his promises to those who turn from sin. Briefly, just a couple lessons. A couple lessons. If we learn anything from the amazing response of this great city, it is to remember that God's mercy and grace can come to the most unlikely of people. The Ninevites, in Jonah's mind, were the least likely to receive the message and turn to the God of Israel. The least likely. How many times, or rather, how many of Jonah's disciples and how many people in the nation of Israel had the city of Nineveh on their prayer lists? I imagine nobody did. Especially not Jonah's disciples, because we saw Jonah's response. He, flee, he would flee from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh was not... The place was not the people that revival was supposed to come to. They were outside of the grace of God, but sometimes it is the most unlikely people who will become the examples of the grace and mercy of God, and that has not stopped to this day. You will find believers from all walks of life saved from all circumstances of life. And praise God that he's still in the work of doing that. If the Ninevites could repent, no one is too wicked to be excluded from our prayer lists. No one is too wicked. No one is too violent. No one is too cruel. No one is too immoral or idolatrous that Christ cannot redeem that person. There's a story that I want to share with you, and it's going to take just a minute to work through, so I'm going to try to work through quickly. In Indonesia, there are 700 different tribal languages spoken with less than 300 of them that have any more than one or two phrases in writing. So there's most of the languages in Indonesia have no written language for the people who are there, and very few speak it outside of those who live in those villages, in those various dialects and languages. There's one trade language, Bahasa, and it is spoken. If you want to trade, that is the language you speak, and that's the only official language of Indonesia, even though there's 700 language groups. 
However, hundreds of people groups are left isolated. One such group lives on the island of Sulawesi. And the island of Sulawesi is a kind of a K-shaped island, and uh, BMW has a work there, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, where this work has been going on for a very long period of time. Bob and Karen Brown are missionaries who live in Lewick on the southern side of one of the peninsulas on the island of Sulawesi. For four decades, they've been attempting to reach a people group on the other side of the peninsula, which is up and over the mountain chain and about a week's hike in to the jungles and still in the mountainous areas of the island of Sulawesi. Three decades ago, Bob and Karen attempted to live in this high tropical tribe, only to be kicked out within just a few weeks of their arrival. So they went to a sister tribe and began to learn the language and would spend time there and establish a small little fledgling church there. That was 30 years ago. Years would go by. Finally, a group from Singapore would contract with a company to build a church in this high tropical tribe, a church building rather, in the village. And the whole idea was to build this church building here and eventually a church will grow. That is not how you plant churches, by the way. Uh, it's not a build them and they will come kind of thing. Uh, that's not how church planning works, but that's what this group from Singapore was doing. The contractor that they hired would wind up having an affair and sleeping with the chief's wife. The chief found out about it, and one foggy morning would meet the contractor, uh, the chief with two of his strongest warriors would meet the contractor on the trail, and there would be nothing left of the contractor. They not only executed him according to the law, which they had the right to do, but then they chopped his body up into small pieces. That is the kind of violence that was demonstrated in that moment. That is against Indonesian law, and so the chief was arrested for the violence of the man's death, and he would be sent to prison miles away from his homeland. He would be in prison for about eight or nine years when a faithful Indonesian pastor, who was a true biblical pastor, he's a good friend of mine as well, and he loves the Lord, and uh, he is a faithful evangelist and Bible scholar, he would encounter this man that no one could communicate with. He would come across him in the prison system, and rumors would swirl about where this chief had come from. But nobody really knew because nobody could communicate to him. He only knew the language of his people group. Eventually, this Indonesian pastor would reach out to Bob and say, I, I think there's a guy in the prison system who knows or who is part of the tribal group that you've worked with before, and perhaps you know the language no one else knows and can, could, could communicate to him. So Bob goes to the prison and met with the man. The man had not understood a word spoken to him since he had entered into the prison system in Indonesia until Bob spoke to him in his native language. Eight years without hearing a word that you could understand. Bob would come into the room and speak to him in his native tongue, and this violent man would eventually come to know Christ as Savior. He remembered as a little child when Bob and Karen first entered into the tribe. Thirty years prior. He remembered because he was the son of the chief at that time. Now, after uh, 30 years, four decades of work that had gone in, 10 years before they got there and 30 years after they had gotten there and been kicked out, after four decades, Bob was invited back into the tribe. 
because of a violent man coming to know Christ as Savior. A man who did not uh, relent from his violence when he killed the offender. He proceeded to chop up his body. Now, 40 years later, Bob and Karen were given the opportunity to go back into the people that they had originally designed to go into. Just a few weeks after he came to know Christ as Savior, this man was released, and together, Bob and Karen, rather Bob and this chief, hiked back a week's journey into the tribe, and right now the gospel is being preached 30 years after the last contact. When we think of revival, when we think of God's work, let us not be those who assume that God is not at work because the person we're dealing with is too violent, doesn't pay attention, is too wicked, too immoral, one who's never going to get it. And if you're tempted to think that way, think of the Ninevites. Sadly, most of the descendants of this revival in Nineveh would return to idolatry within a hundred years. And it was around a hundred years after this great awakening in 612 B.C. that God would indeed destroy Nineveh as he promised to do through the prophet Nahum. Nevertheless, as I started this evening, I finish. There's a group of Assyrian Christians, that is, people from this region who trace their roots to ancient Nineveh to this day. And they point to their faith as inspired by God's compassion toward Nineveh in sending Jonah to them. What a powerful testimony for our own evangelistic work. We live in a day and age where we look at our world and we say, what is happening? Let us look at our day and age and say, what a setting for revival. Let us be those who proclaim the truth of Christ's word. Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the testimony of the Ninevites. We praise you for the testimony of this chief who has now opened up the doors to his village and countless other villages to receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ because he would encounter a pastor and then a missionary who would pour into him the gospel, that your spirit would be at work in his life and now the door is flung open on a people group that had never been reached for the gospel before. Lord, we know that this is just one of countless stories throughout the years of history. But it is those stories that we reflect upon tonight that drive us into this age where we look at our world around us. And we've studied through the critical thinking series the challenges that we face. And yet I pray that throughout all of this we would not believe that any of those that we've talked about, any of those ideologies or those worldviews that have driven people away from the truth of your word, any of these people would be too far to reach. May we be faithful evangelists in reaching them for the truth of the word of God and the truth of what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we praise you for these examples and testimonies, and I pray now that we would be obedient to you and proceeding from here and giving and the glory that belongs to you as we enter into this week, give us opportunities to share the gospel with those who do not yet know you as Savior. And then allow us to return next week to be sharpened, strengthened, and renewed as we worship you together again, that your name would be glorified in all of these things. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. Bless us as we depart from here this evening. In your son's name we pray. Amen.